Welcome to Credit Hour, a weekly thought-provoking conversation with the brightest minds from the University of South Dakota. They get the credit, we ask the questions. This is Credit Hour. On today's episode, we interview former U.S. Senator Larry Presler about his life and career and his continuing mission inspiring the next generation to enter public service. Senator Presler, how are you doing today? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm here and I'm being seen but not viewed, <laughs> so I'm very happy. Um, you, know, you are a, a USD graduate. Um, I think my first question, obviously, you were here last night for an event on political participation. I want to get into that, but I want to kind of delve into kind of your life and career first. Um, what were you like as a student? Were you incredibly studious, um, a little bit more lackadaisical? What, what, how would you have rated yourself? Well, I was, I think, about a B-plus student, A-minus. Uh, I worked pretty hard at it. Uh, uh, I've never been brilliant. That is, I've always had to do my, uh, read everything and do my homework, and uh, uh, I, I worked hard. Uh, now, you didn't ask me this, but I grew up on a small farm near Humboldt, South Dakota, and that has a lot of disadvantages and some advantages, maybe. We didn't realize, we thought we were the center of the universe with our 4-H livestock and we were happy kids and so I had a, uh, I'd say a lower middle income uh, upbringing, what would be, I, at the time I thought we were middle class and uh, we probably were maybe in some ways, but um, Humboldt is a fairly rural community and uh, I never got exposed to opera, for example, uh, uh, or uh, ballet and things like that until later. Um, and, uh, but I needed, the, but the University of South Dakota did a lot for me, and I'm grateful to it, so I'm back here uh, giving free speeches <laughs> uh, to anybody who will listen, because I'm grateful to the, because uh, it was the school, it was the most affordable school for me. I looked at all the costs of Augustana, University of Minnesota, School of Mines and Technology out at Rapid City, and I could figured out that I could come to Vermilion and live in Julian Hall, and not join a fraternity, and get a board job. I could afford to go to college for at least two years, uh, I thought. And then when uh, when I got down here, they passed the National Student Defense Loan Act or something like that, so I was able to borrow. So I got through my four years, but it was a struggle. Um, you know, that resonates with me. I think I was probably one of the last generations that actually uh, lived in Julian Hall as well. We've since subsequently upgraded our dorm facilities so um, people don't have the oh, opportunity what's to... What's become of Julian Hall? Well, I think now it's they... It's still there, I saw yeah, it. It's still there. I think they now use it mostly as administrative space. Um, so I don't think... I'd have to check. I don't think anybody lives there anymore. But like I said, I, I was there, you know, 2006, 2008, around then. So they were still using it as a dorm room there. So I'd be curious maybe what room you were in. Maybe I was I was yeah, in maybe, the old Larry Presley room. <laughs> um, I don't think they named it after me. <laughs> you, you, you were a student body president at USD, correct? That, that is correct. Student association president, we called it then. Now, were, did... Were you always interested in politics? Was that always something that you were passionate and you knew you wanted to pursue, or did you kind of just find that as an interest in college? Uh, no, strangely enough, uh, I didn't really plan a political career, and uh, I planned to go into the Foreign Service, which I did uh, eventually, but in those days we had the Vietnam draft. Well, I, well, I was lucky enough to meet uh, Dr. Bill Farber and Tom Gary. These are professors in those days, and Ellen Clem and others, and I should mention many others, 
but there's kind of a, a, a historic interest in government here at the University of South Dakota that is, I think, is one of the best political science departments in the nation, bar none. Uh, and uh, I think it still is. And uh, so if you're interested in public administration, government, criminal law, uh, things like that, uh, justice, um, and I think our history departments here, and the business school, the whole school does very well for itself. And, you know, South Dakotans uh, tend to underrate themselves a little bit, and students, they tend to underrate. They think, well, if I go to the University of South Dakota, the Harvard guys will get all the jobs. Not true. Um, they will get just as many if they apply for them and scramble around a little bit. Um, you know, do you have a favorite memory of maybe like Doc Farber? Well, yes, uh, I remember uh, getting a wonderful letter from him. Now, Dr. Farber was not actually here the semester I started because he had gone off to Washington to do a project for Senator Munt, Carl E. Munt, who was the Republican senator in those days. Um, and uh, uh, then he did another one for Senator George McGovern later. So um, he was absent some of the semesters. Uh, but he wrote me a beautiful letter when I was in high school. And he said, I had written him a letter asking him about scholarship money and so forth. And it was just, he was just a name. He wrote me back and he said, that was the best worded letter I've ever received from a high school student. Thank you very much. And later on I found out he sent out him, sent him out by the hundreds. So, <laughs> but anyway, he was a charming guy. And uh, he made me feel good. Uh, you know, that made me laugh. I, I want to say I'd have to go back and check our, our recording. I want to say Governor Dugard had a very similar story. We interviewed him on the podcast, and he talked about Doc Farber kind of recruiting him um, to USD as well. And he, he, you know, Governor Dugard, I think, had a similar story. It was the most affordable path, you know, for him to pursue a higher education like that. Um, yeah, I'm curious. We just recently, I think last year, maybe the year prior, had a Rhodes Scholar winner, Josh Arns. Um, this was something that you um, received, uh, you know, after your undergraduate days. Um, I don't know if you can just tell us a little bit about that experience. What did you study? Why, how did you think it, you know, added to your career that you would eventually have? Well, I think, I believe, sitting here, that I was selected as a Rhodes Scholar because of my record in 4-H with agricultural, uh, and that's unusual out at the university. Normally, people like that would go to South Dakota State. But I uh, raised some farm animals and went to the county fair and state fair, and I became what's called an all-American 4-H'er, and I, through some interview, when I went to the, 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 the National 4-H Club Congress in Chicago. I, they still have it, but they have it in some other city. But uh, um, the, the uh, point of the whole matter was it was something different about me, and I wasn't really, I was almost as, I got a lot of A's in my major, but I'd probably been an A minus B plus student in general. But in those days, uh, or Cecil Rhodes, when he set it up, said that they wanted some farm boys and some guys from out there and uh, uh, in the uh, uh, hinterlands and the people who've taken care of livestock and so forth. So when I uh, finally got to Oxford University in England uh, after graduating from the University of South Dakota, I went in to see the warden of Rhodes House, E.T. Williams, who since passed away. But he said to me, but I felt kind of meek or kind of, I was with a lot of guys from Harvard and other places who had won Rhodes scholarships. And Williams said to me, you're exactly what Cecil Rhodes had in mind out there from rural South Dakota. That's what we want, a, a little difference, a little diversity around Oxford University. So anyway. The point is don't underrate yourself or underrate what you're doing. Uh, I say to these students, uh, they scramble around and apply for these jobs, but you've got to apply. And uh, I always tell people, 
to go into the one little secret uh, I'll give is to go into your congressional field offices. Every congressman and senator has field offices in Sioux Falls and Rapid City and Aberdeen probably. People in there were doing casework for him. And if you actually walk in there, which you can do, and say this is my letter and this is my resume, I want to join the civil service or I want to get a government job or I want to work in for a congressman or I want to do something or I want to be a city manager like they have over here at Yankton. Um, you can get a lot of guidance and help usually from your congressional offices and uh, that's something that uh, I urge young people to do. Now you're <clears throat> obviously passionate about public service. Um, you kind of mentioned before you served in Vietnam, correct? Um, and I believe you were the first House member actually elected. I'm a, a former Vietnam veteran. The first uh, Senate. Uh, I was the first senator. Okay. There was another uh, House member who was elected about six months before me um, from Pennsylvania. But I was, the first, I was the first Vietnam veteran to enter the United States Senate. I'm curious, that experience, what do, what do you think that added to your... Um, you know, I guess viewpoints on foreign policy. I, I want to get into some of the work that you did on nonproliferation. Um, but what I guess, you know, obviously the 70s, um, 80s, uh, tumultuous time, you know, with foreign policy. Um, did that experience, I guess, inform, you know, your outlook on how you viewed foreign policy? Well, yes, it did. And it probably made me more of an isolationist because I came to realize how limited I think we're spending too much money overseas on too many projects and too much military around the world. And there's a limit as to what we can do. Uh, you can have all the best intentions in the world, but we cannot, our deficit is so high, we cannot go on spending as much money as we are. And I don't agree with the tax cut bill because that increases the deficit more. I am a Republican, but the last, I'll say the last guy who balanced the budget was Bill Clinton, who uh, some wanted to throw out of office, but uh, others didn't. Uh, but in any event, Bill Clinton and Newt Gingrich uh, and to some extent Bob Dole, I think. But they had to have a, t a tax increase, but they balanced the budget, and that, I think, provided a basis for the prosperity that we have today. So I, I've got to, although I don't agree with him on a lot of things, and uh, uh, my personal relationships with him were not the greatest sometimes, but um, I'll, I'll give Bill Clinton credit for a balanced budget. Well, you know, I think that actually brings up a kind of interesting point. I mean... You know, I think people maybe looked at the 90s at the time, and they, they looked at the politics, they looked at the scandals, the kind of partisanship that, you know, was developing in the 90s, and they said, man, can it get any worse? Um, you know, fast forward uh, to, to 2018, and I think you see that even, and I don't, you know, this kind of probably maybe gets into your discussion um, that you had last night about political participation, but, you know, some of the just, um, you know, estimates, I guess, as far as voter turnout not, um, you know, they haven't necessarily all been counted, but it was one of the highest, um, you know, midterm elections um, that we've had, you know, in 100 years, or I think the statistic I read was since, uh, maybe not 100 years, da, 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 since 1966, it was the highest midterm. You know, it, I think in one way, I, I think you can look at it both cynically and optimistically, right? In an optimistic way, more people are involved, more people are engaged, more people are voting, that's good for democracy, right? Um, the cynical side of me, though, says, man, part of the reason why you saw such motivation uh, maybe with this midterm election is because both sides are dug in, right? And so there's kind of this increasing level of partisanship. H how do you make of this? I mean, you obviously served in the 90s. Is, is partisanship 
you know, different today? Is it much more worse, or is, is it worse, or is it kind of more of the same? I mean, what's your take on that? Well, um, you know, I just had dinner last night with uh, Ted and Karen Munster uh, and others, uh, and we once ran against each other for the United States Senate. But back in those days, I don't think either he nor I used negative ads, as far as I can recall, and uh, it was a different era. There were policy debates, for example. We're very much in need of a real policy debate, but the people have to be willing to listen. Uh, like you go around and get, make speeches now on policy, and very few people will listen to you. I guess they're getting stuff off of podcasts or something. I don't know what, or uh, uh, CNN or uh, Fox News or their 30-second solutions. Uh, but very few people, most public policy problems have many, many moving pieces, and you have to think through rigorously what, is, what a solution might be, what a first step might be. And um, uh, therein lies a problem in that very few people are willing to listen to it. But back in those days, you could go around to the, the towns and make speeches, and you'd get an audience of maybe 20 to 40 people, and they would they seem to be listening and asking questions more than happens now i believe do you think that's a product of technology um you know new mediums of communication that um prioritize i guess you know superficial quick exchanges rather than maybe sort of in-depth analysis yes i i think that's right you know it takes a uh, there's lots of moving pieces for example on the gun control debate most people have a one-sentence solution, but there is no such thing. Part of it, people who say that we need to have more background investigations, they should also say if we're going to have that, we're going to have to change the privacy rules and the and the uh, tort liability that if I feel some student of mine is dangerous, I can't really pass that on to another institution unless I get a psychiatrist to declare that person is dangerous, and that's very expensive, and most people will let, let, not do it. So there are many moving pieces. On the other hand, if you, uh, of the gun control debate, there are people who say, well, if we had a concealed carry rule, whereas I might be wearing a gun right now under my uh, jacket here, and I, I could go any place with that, that would mean that there, a killer wouldn't be able to go into a soft target, like if, uh, classroom or a synagogue or a church we've had all, all the above or a, a bar um, because the, the killer would be afraid somebody would shoot back at him before he shot a bunch of them but the problem with that, that then there are other exceptions to that for example the Las Vegas shooter that wouldn't have made any difference so every solution you come up with has a checkmate of some sort but that doesn't mean we shouldn't try to get some kind of a combination of them. But the problem we have is our people are so divided that the person who is for more background checks and for limited carry is not willing to accept the concealed carry part of it. The concealed carry guy is not willing to accept more background checks because he feels that those background checks would discriminate against guys like him. You know, I want to rewind for a second. We've you know, obviously talked about your career. Um, we've talked about, you know, the, the kind of partisan nature of, of politics right now. Um, I want to talk about it if, you know, someone is thinking about being a candidate, someone's thinking about maybe getting involved. Um, what, what would be, like, I, I, do you have a roadmap? What would be your game plan for somebody who's just, 
you know, kind of interested, maybe think that they don't believe the government is working the way it should, or they're maybe inspired by a specific issue. Mm -hmm. um, what would your advice to that person be? Well, um, you know, um, the, Ver the Vermilion Plain Talk uh, had a great article written by David Lias uh, about two weeks ago. David Lias is the editor over there at the Vermilion Plain Talk, and he wrote about my 1974 campaign which he was a part, a volunteer. He drove my car and uh, uh, handed out literature and so forth. Uh, I guess maybe we've gotten a little, it's harder to do now, but in those days you could do retail politics uh, and be effective at it. But I still think you can do that in most South Dakota races if you've got enough energy and uh, you can get yourself out of bed at 4.30 in the morning and go to the where workers are coming or hospital workers are coming or where uh, there, there's a lot of stuff going on between 4.30 and 6.30 in the morning that you can go talk to people uh, uh, without bothering them too much. Uh, uh, believe it or not, in many cafes that are near hospitals, you'll find a lot of shift workers coming or going or cleaners or whatever, or doctors or nurses, uh, and you can talk to a lot of people. You can still do that in South Dakota politics to some extent. But money has become pervasive. Uh, at the end of the day, these negative ads that people buy are, uh, uh, and I've had a lot of negative ads run against me. I've lost some races for the U.S. Senate, so I've taken a few punches. Also, in addition to having had several victories, uh, and uh, 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 but South Dakota, you can still, if you wish to start by running for the state legislature or for city council or or for the U.S. Congress, for that matter. Um, but I had some pretty good credentials, I guess. I was a Vietnam veteran at the time, and uh, had been a uh, uh, University of South Dakota graduate, but a 4-H, 4-H, a long record in 4-H agriculture, and I knew a lot of people from 4-H. I knew more people from 4-H than I did from the university here. Uh, but. Um, uh, Things have changed. We don't have so many farmers now either. The, the, the farmers that we have are bigger and richer and so forth. But um, uh, it seems to me that we have a real window of opportunity for young people to get into politics in this state. Or one can go into one of the congressional offices and volunteer uh, if, if you can't get a job. And we had w one young man who went to Northern University and had uh, like a B minus average up there and he volunteered in our Aberdeen office, and subsequently, after working, we finally hired him at a low wage up there, wish it were higher, but he eventually came to Washington, D.C., and volunteered for a while in the mail room, but he got a job with us and uh, worked up through Larry Pressler's staff, and then went over to the Senate floor to a, a job, starting as a uh, sort of a, a tour guide over there, and he's now the doorkeeper of the United States Senate. Well, that may not sound like such a great job to be the doorkeeper, but it pays very high, and it's in charge of all the paperwork and everything. It comes from the old English word. Who, they keep track of who's coming on the floor and who isn't, and what uh, where the legislation is printed, and all the administrative work of the Senate. So that's a big job for a guy from a little town of, uh, I said it this morning, it's not Alpena, but it's near Alpena, uh, and going to Northern University. 
point is South Dakotans should not underrate themselves, but you have to scramble around a little bit. Um, you you kind of touched on this. And you said that you've run for Senate multiple times. You've had your fair share of victories. You've also taken your lumps. You lost a hard Senate battle, I think, in 1996 against yeah. um, Tim Johnson. I think one thing that I've always admired about your career is your ability to kind of get yourself up off the floor and, and dust yourself out and go out there again. And like I said, I, I think that's an admirable quality. And I think it shows that it's not, it's that your motivation isn't so much the ego. I think that when uh, people maybe, I don't want to say they have a bad motivation, but when they're kind of wrapped up in themselves, they take a loss like that, it, it kind of defeats them, right? And very much you've continued to campaign on the things that you've believed in. I don't know if you can just talk about that. I mean, what was that experience like? How did it influence you as a person? Did it change maybe the way you thought about politics? Or, you know, I'll kind of let you take it from there. Well, I suppose, uh, yes, I'm still, I'm still interested in trying. And uh, I'm a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, for example. And we have some input into foreign policy, although it be minuscule as it might be. But we can, and, and I write newspaper articles and columns uh, whenever I feel strongly about an issue. And uh, I write a column every two weeks, in fact, for the Deseret News, which I sometimes send to other papers, and sometimes they run it, and sometimes they don't. But uh, the point is, I've, I've, I've remained involved. Uh, I'm a member of some uh, uh, clubs that try to influence policy a little bit, or, or they're, uh, they're really not clubs, they're uh, uh, study groups or something like that. And uh, we submit a paper every now and then on some uh, issue. So I have tried. I read with some amusement here at the University of South Dakota, Al Newharth, the, the late Al Newharth. He's got a, 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 um, the Newharth Center, a, which is the journalistic center. He's got a sign up over there that he wrote once. And it said, forgotten, but not gone. <laughs> so. Uh, as, as I go around, some people have forgotten who I am, but I'm not gone. Uh, uh, but uh, I do enjoy getting around to some of these colleges. I had the opportunity to speak up at State this spring, and I'm speaking here. Well, I was scheduled to come here for three days, actually, in April and speak to students. But uh, we had a snowstorm, and they, they canceled the flights out of here and there. And you've, the, brought the the you've brought the snow twice yes, now. Yes, twice now I've brought the snow. <laughs> I can say twice now we have been in. I brought the snow to Vermilion. Uh, but um, um, anyway, I think you got to keep on, and that's one thing about choosing a career in public service or politics, or, and I'm not saying that somebody, if you go out and form a business, you're providing a great public service by providing jobs and paying taxes and so forth. But the thrill of public service is to be able to influence some things in the public sector and you might do that as a civil servant or a foreign service or an elected official or a city councilman or a school board member. But you won't make as much money in the public sector, but you'll have the thrill of public service and also the disappointment and the frustration of it. But I have somehow kept on marching, even though I've had some several setbacks also. But um, I'm proud of the, uh, uh, I'm proud of, uh, my several runs as a Republican, and I am today a registered Republican, and I'm a moderate Republican, and I urge, I think young people should join the Republican Party and be a moderate rather than a Democrat, because you're more needed and vote for the most moderate candidates you can find, if you can find any moderates on the Republican primaries, but there are a few. Um, 
<coughs> you know, I, I kind of want to go back here for a second and talk about, um, you, know, you, you mentioned, you know, your experience at USD. So much of it was about the professors that you had that opened so many doors to you. I think my generation at USD, we um, kind of talk about a, a figure who I think is up there with Doc Barber in terms of the amount of influence that she's had on people's lives and subsequently, I think, their impact on, um, you know, the politics of this country and especially South Dakota, Mary Pat Byerly. And she was a big supporter of yours. Um, you know, she worked for you, correct? Yes, I'm uh, very, very honored to have her help me. You know, I don't know if you can just give us a, a good Mary Pat story. She might well, kill me for asking, but I'm kind of curious what she was like in her younger days. She was a tough uh, professor. She, you know, obviously cared so much about her students, and that's why I think we all loved her. Um, what was she like, you, you know, in her kind of, you know, working days when she was trying to, you know, at the levers of power, kind of, you know, moving and dealing? What, what was she like? Well, she's certainly a wonderful woman, and she became a great professor. She worked on my staff for a time, then she worked for Senator Danforth, uh, chairman of the Commerce Committee, for a period of time. And uh, she may have had one or two public service interludes, and then she became a professor. So she really had the ideal jobs, and uh, I'm sure she's still active in some things. Uh, but uh, uh, I salute her because she's, I cited her as one of the examples. The government department at the University of South Dakota during my lifetime, and probably before this there were others, but we had Dr. Farber and Dr. Gary and Dr. Clem and others and Mary Pat Byerly and uh, others down to the present day, Chairman Ernst and, and, and uh, others. Um, uh, so, uh, and I, I guess we had three political science professors present at our meeting that we had today, the lunch we had, the brown bag I had with students today. So um, uh, I think Mary Pat Byerly, she's got a great fan club out there. I'll tell you, I meet everybody I meet, they say, hey, I really like Mary Pat Byerly's teaching, and she was associated with you somehow, and so they think a little bit more of me. <laughs> well, and I, I mean, I think that is, it, and you talked about this, I mean, I think it's something that's unique about, you know, the political science department here at USD. The best professors teach the intro-level classes. You know, it's not something that they kind of throw away to the grad students to, you know, just kind of try to get people through those initial credits. I think it was intentional that she was there right when you got there to kind of set the tone of what, the whole four years was going to be. I think that that for me was really important. It, it you know, it, I think it made me realize what the expectations were going to be, um, and it just uh, it's hard to put into words. I think the impact that she had on, on my life. I it's you know I, I don't know if I even would have graduated college to be frank with you if not for Mary Pat. And you know I think about the influential people that she's taught. She's just made such a huge impact in my life and, and so many others. Um, and I think that's the point of public service, right? I mean, I, I think even, you know, with Mary Pat, I mean, that's, she ended her career, you know, as a teacher, which is a, a fairly aspirational thing to do, to try to influence the next generation. What, you know, if you were going to look at your legacy, what would you be most proud of um, as far as accomplishments? It might be a specific bill. It might be, you know, just a relationship that you built with someone. I'm curious what you kind of think in that regard. What do people, what do you want people to take away from your career in life? Well, um, I guess perseverance. Uh, I do have a basic belief in God or a higher power, but I don't think mine is any better than anybody else's. And, uh, but I do think that we are here for a purpose, and, but it's a struggle. You know, if God really loved 
the human race so much? Why did he cre create us with so many flaws, and why are there so many wars and so forth? I don't know the answer to that, but I do know that um, I've been given certain talents in a certain situation, and I'm going to try to do the best I can to serve others and to be of service of some sort. But that doesn't mean that you have to be in government to do that. You can do it as a friend to somebody, or you can do it uh, by reaching out your hand, the hand of friendship to somebody who's in distress or grieving, or you can do it by being a businessman and working hard and uh, saving money and paying taxes and creating jobs, as my nephew is doing at the um, in his garage um, in Humboldt, South Dakota. So uh, uh, we are a great nation. I don't think that we are in as bad a shape as you would conclude by listening to the daily news. Um, uh, now those fellows have a, a motivation to keep a crisis going all the time, and uh, that, that, that might be good for us to, to believe that. But when I was growing up in the 1950s, I think we had a grim set of facts and reality than we do today. Uh, I think we're a prosperous country, and we've just had a very successful election, uh, however you view it. Uh, and <clears throat> we have a president whom I think will go down as a good president at the end of the day. And I think he'll be reelected by the American people overwhelmingly uh, in 2020. But I'm not, and I did not vote for him uh, when he ran the first time. So um, that's kind of the way I see the world. I see it not in rose-colored tinged lenses, but I think I, I'm, a, I'm an optimist. Um, that kind of answers, I think, the last question that I had, which, which was, if there's one thing, you know, at this point in your life, um, what do you know for sure about life? But I don't know if you want to answer the question or, or if, if no, the no, last one no. was. No, no, that's right. Well, I, I, I do think that an effort to serve others is key uh, to life. Uh, it is about all that there is. Now, I've got four wonderful grandchildren and so forth, and I love them and they love me. But um, the point is, I've had a chance in my lifetime to serve on a broader basis, to, to get 18 years in the United States Senate and four years in the United States House is considered a long time. It's a great honor that the people of South Dakota gave me. Uh, and I hope I've honored them by working hard at it all the time. You know, I, I, I became fiscally more conservative toward the end of my career. I even voted against the farm bill because I thought that these, these endless subsidies just cannot go on, not just for agriculture, but across the board. And I also voted against airport subsidies and a whole bunch of stuff. And that gets you into trouble with a lot of it, special interest groups. And when you run for re-election, it's hard. Uh, and I was defeated over some of those very same issues. But um, uh, I felt, for example, that uh, the dairy subsidies and the some of the farm subsidies that were put in as emergency measures to help uh, a distressed agriculture were not necessarily permanent. and But that's true of other subsidies that are, and I think in order to reduce our deficit, we're going to have to apply that because we subsidize, now we're, we're going to subsidize the domestic steel industry and the parts of the agricultural industry that are, are affected by the tariffs. And we cannot afford to do that. Uh, we have to let the the free enterprise system work to some extent, and that's going to mean that there are winners and losers. Everybody can't be a winner 
if, uh, but we would like that to be the case. We do need a social safety net. I'm not a hard nose. I want to take care of the handicapped and help people who need help. But I guess I'm a moderate Republican or a centrist, and uh, I strongly believe that we have a great country, but we're going to have to fight to keep it. Um, <clears throat> Senator Presler, thank you so much for the conversation today. Thank you for coming back to USD and sharing your experience and uh, career with all of us here uh, this last week. So thank you very yes. much. I'm very flattered to think that, uh, uh, that I have uh, something to say. I, t I tell it like it is. But my basic message is that I urge people to consider a career in politics or public service, and part of their pay will be uh, satisfaction that they tried to do the right thing. I think that's the only thing that we can ask of ourselves. Thank you very much, Senator. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Credit Hour, a weekly thought-provoking conversation with the brightest minds from the University of South Dakota. Listening is 100% of the grades. We hope you enjoyed the episode.